Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, December 13th, 2022, the 692nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, by all means, continue listening to the podcast a couple days behind for free on a variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So we're going to catch up on the Twitter files today. But before we do that, we have to talk about a major advance in biology. And this comes from the New York Post today. Cambridge Dictionary changes definition 
of man and woman. This is probably the most significant advance in the whole of biological knowledge since the beginning of mankind and biology. Cambridge Dictionary is being criticized by conservatives on social media for altering the definitions of the word man and woman to include people who identify as a gender other than their biological sex. The definition of woman, which previously represented the long-standing view on sex, now states that a woman is, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth, end quote. Now, why in the world is Cambridge Dictionary acting like a biologist? I can't answer that question. But even their description of this biological advance is a bit lacking. What does it mean, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth? What does it matter whether or not someone says they had a different sex at birth? They either did or didn't. What kind of definition is this? This is basically just an undefinition. We have changed the definition of something to mean that thing and its opposite and ultimately anything else people want to say that word means. They might as well just change the definition of the word definition. And I'm not sure that they haven't done that already. I actually kind of remember a few months ago. Maybe Miriam Webster did that. But who's to say? Once you have changed the definition of man and woman, there's genuinely nothing that can't be redefined at that point. Similarly, a man is now defined as, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. It's funny to me that Cambridge is just happy to blow up their storied brand at this point. Cambridge Dictionary used to seem prestigious, like it was an authoritative source for what words meant. And now you have to wonder if Cambridge Dictionary even still identifies as a dictionary. Maybe it's just a trans dictionary. Maybe it's a non-binary dictionary. Sometimes it's a dictionary. Sometimes it's a Twilight novel, and sometimes it's a comic book. Just depends on how it feels when the dictionary wakes up in the morning. It would be amazing if you could buy a Cambridge dictionary at the store, and when you woke up every day, the dictionary just looked completely different. Like the next day, it's got a, uh, a pink cover and all new fonts. The change was met with pushback from many who argued that redefining Society's categorization of gender and sex is harmful and inaccurate. Cambridge Dictionary just dropped a new definition of woman. Christopher Rufo, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, tweeted. Rufo also pointed out that the dictionary used the pronoun they to describe the subject rather than she. So in order for Cambridge Dictionary to comply with the woke pronoun rules, they actually have to redefine what pronouns mean what. And the article goes on with a compilation of Twitter reactions. You know, hard-hitting journalism. But changing the definition of man and woman isn't only about changing definitions. It's basically an attack on the human origin story. 
And so ultimately an attack on God. Eventually, they'll just get rid of the concepts of man and woman altogether and simply call everyone comrade. And at some point, they'll probably just begin identifying people with serial numbers. But no one can be surprised by this because you'll remember that at some point during 2020, there was an argument on Twitter participated in by academics math professors, where they tried to prove that two plus two actually could equal five, which is directly out of Orwell's 1984. And for me, previous to that, it was one of the parts of Orwell I'm where I was just like, oh, well, that's going too far. No one would ever do that. Well, they did it. So three cheers for postmodernism and apparently biologists are no longer a necessary part of the process. So let's get into the Twitter files. This is from Friday evening, Matt Taibbi doing the reporting. The removal of Donald Trump, part one, October 2020 through January 6th. The world knows much of the story of what happened between riots at the Capitol on January 6th and the removal of President Donald Trump from Twitter on January 8th. We'll show you what hasn't been revealed, the erosion of standards within the company in the months before January 6th, decisions by high-ranking executives to violate their own policies, and more, against the backdrop of ongoing, documented interaction with federal agencies. And this is one of the really stunning parts to me. The fact that the federal agencies are involved in censoring any Americans is a blatant violation of of the First Amendment rights of every American. The fact that they are doing it to censor Donald Trump, the duly elected sitting president at the time, is extraordinary. And the funny way this is being played and that the people on the left are reacting to this, they were saying in the initial drops about the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story that it wasn't the Biden administration doing it. And therefore, for some reason, people shouldn't be upset about it. What this exposes is that there is, in fact, a deep state that was operating within the federal bureaucracy and the agencies of the executive branch in an attempt to bring down the sitting president. By any definition, that is a coup. But we're supposed to pretend all of it was justified based on some claim about public safety, as if it's just a hard and fast fact about the world that conspiracy theories about stolen elections, when the elections are obviously stolen, somehow incite violence and pose a grave risk to public safety. And that's all supported by the fact that there was violence on January 6th. And of course, it leaves out any discussion about how January 6th was as much an op run by the feds as it was a protest against the stolen election. That claim alone should communicate the gravity of this situation. But of course, we're dealing with people attached to a false reality 
where anything is justified as long as it supports their story and the continuation of that false reality that they just can't let go of. Back to Taibbi. This first installment covers the period before the election through January 6th. Tomorrow, Michael Schellenberger will detail the chaos inside Twitter on January 7th. On Sunday, Barry Weiss will reveal the secret internal communications from the key date of January 8th. And that schedule got a bit delayed. Barry Weiss didn't do her drop until last night, the 12th rather than the 11th. Whatever your opinion on the decision to remove Trump that day, the internal communications at Twitter between January 6th and January 8th have clear historical import. Even Twitter's employees understood in the moment it was a landmark moment in the annals of speech. And Taibbi attaches a screenshot, I guess, maybe from their Slack channel. Is this the first sitting head of state to ever be suspended? As soon as they finished banning Trump, Twitter execs started processing new power. They prepared to ban future presidents and White Houses, perhaps even Joe Biden. The quote unquote new administration says one exec will not be suspended by Twitter unless absolutely necessary. So they know immediately that what they're doing is wrong and untenable. And it's pretty clear that they don't intend to apply the same standards to Joe Biden that they do to Donald Trump, which is especially interesting with the backdrop of potential political violence coming as a result of tweets, particularly when Joe Biden, the fake president, and Kamala Harris, the fake vice president, were tweeting in support of the BLM Antifa movement and the riots and violence and assaults and burning and looting that followed in that movement. They were all in support of that on Twitter and elsewhere. That was part of a color revolution. That was domestic terrorism, and they were supporting it online. But Joe Biden is not really eligible to be suspended by Twitter. One of the Twitter employees, these names are redacted, unfortunately, wrote, as stated in our ban evasion policy, if it is clear that another account is being used for the purposes of evading a ban, it is also subject to suspension for government accounts such as POTUS and White House. We will not suspend those accounts, but will take action to limit their use. However, these accounts will be transitioned over to the new administration in due course and will not be suspended by Twitter unless absolutely necessary to alleviate real world harm. Always about real world harm. They decide what constitutes real world harm. Twitter executives removed Trump in part over what one executive called the context surrounding actions by Trump and supporters over the course of the election and frankly, the last four plus years. In the end, they looked at a broad picture, but that approach can cut both ways. The attached message. Hi, Vidya. I'm working with name redacted on my team to put together a doc to share with you a POV from research hours, academics with whom we have been working, etc., on DJT's language as coded incitement to further violence. And so we discussed this a bit last week. Twitter wants their researchers to supply them with whatever sorts of studies they can use to justify the decisions that they have already made. They want to do something, so they put their research team on it to figure out what the benefits of them doing that act of censorship 
could be and what problems might arise, what real world harms might spring into being if they fail to censor. The second part of that attached message. In the meantime, here's our quick take. The decision on whether to pull that particular tweet or use that as a last straw for Trump depends on many factors, including one, the overall context and narrative in which that tweet lives. We currently analyze tweets and consider them at a tweet by tweet basis, which does not appropriately take into account the context surrounding. You can use the yelling fire into a crowded theater example. Context matters and the narrative that Trump and his friends have pursued over the course of this election and frankly, the last four plus years must be taken into account when interpreting and analyzing that tweet. And two, the larger question is around our moral imperative and decision as a company, which user sentiment should not drive based on number one. The redacted name and I believe that his tweet does violate our rules when taking that historical context plus current climate into account. So we are just encountering level after level of subjectivity in making these decisions. All of them are based on ad hoc justifications. They need to figure out what works in that moment, and they can include whatever opinions they want from the outside, whatever they determine constitutes context. And we see how they operate when they're trying to contextualize things. For instance, any mass shooting is the responsibility of people who say the no-no things on the internet and anyone who supports the Second Amendment. And when you are accustomed to that sort of thinking and that sort of rationalization, you can basically rationalize anything by appealing to whatever you can connect that to as long as enough people will agree with you that those are somehow connected and that a bad thing will surely happen. The bulk of the internal debate leading to Trump's ban took place in those three January days. However, the intellectual framework was laid in the months preceding the Capitol riots. Before J6, Twitter was a unique mix of automated rules-based enforcement and more subjective moderation by senior executives. As Barry Weiss reported, the firm had a vast array of tools for manipulating visibility, most all of which were thrown at Trump and others pre-J6. As the election approached, senior executives, perhaps under pressure from federal agencies with whom they met more as time progressed, increasingly struggled with rules and began to speak of VIOs, violations, as pretexts to do what they'd likely have done anyway. So they're making decisions and then justifying them after the fact. After J6, internal slacks show Twitter executives getting a kick out of intensified relationships with federal agencies. Here's trust and safety head Yoel Roth lamenting a lack of generic enough calendar descriptions to concealing his quote unquote very interesting meeting partners. He writes, eh, it happens. I'm a big believer in calendar transparency, but I reached a certain point where my meetings became dot, 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 very interesting dot, dot, dot to people. And there weren't meeting names generic enough to cover. Anyway, let me know. He writes later, very boring business meeting that is definitely not about Trump. He writes a few seconds later, 
pretty much. And a few seconds after that, definitely not meeting with the FBI, I swear. These initial reports are based on searches for docs linked to prominent executives whose names are already public. They include Roth, former trust and policy chief Vidya Gotti, and recently plank walked deputy general counsel and former top FBI lawyer Jim Baker. One particular Slack channel offers a unique window into the evolving thinking of top officials in late 2020 and early 2021. On October 8th, 2020, executives opened a channel called US 2020 XFN Enforcement. Through J6, this would be home for discussions about election-related removals, especially ones that involved high-profile accounts, often called VITs or very important tweeters. Here's the message. Hey, everyone. Starting tomorrow, October 9th until November 15th, this channel will be used for the following reasons related to the U.S. 2020 elections. Trends identified that require scaled investigations. High-profile account escalations that potentially require PII slash soft interventions. Scalable solutions required. Edge cases for XFN consultation. Highlight tech issues, bugs, tools, JIRA tickets, outage. This is an enforcement channel between TNS and TWS to help speed up our response related to election issues over the coming weeks. And it goes on. There was at least some tension between safety operations, a larger department whose staffers used a more rules-based process for addressing issues like porn, scams, and threats, and a smaller, more powerful cadre of senior policy execs like Roth and Gaddy. The later group were a high-speed Supreme Court of moderation, issuing content rulings on the fly, often in minutes and based on guesses, gut calls, even Google searches even in cases involving the president. And, you know, it's funny that they use Google. These are like high profile tech execs that know about censorship. They themselves are censors. They know that Twitter is censored. They know that Facebook is censored. They know that Google is censored. Facebook, of course, goes alongside Instagram and WhatsApp. Google goes alongside YouTube. So all of these platforms, these legacy social media platforms, they're all censored and these people know it. And they still use those censored environments to get information. It makes me think of that old picture of Mark Zuckerberg's laptop with the the tape over the camera on the laptop. Zuckerberg believed that spying through that camera was possible and a problem. And so he took a step to make sure that that problem didn't affect him. Likewise, with Google, they know it's censored but they're not taking that extra step to solve that simple problem, which shows that they don't actually care about making proper decisions. They just care about providing a surface level justification for the decisions they've already made. Taibbi attaches a post from that Slack channel that features a Donald Trump tweet from October 9th, 2020, breaking news, 50,000 Ohio voters getting wrong absentee ballots out of control, a rigged election. Someone in the conversation whose name is redacted writes, a rigged election would be enough to be in violation, right? Yoel Roth responds, if the claim of fact were inaccurate, yes, but it looks like that's true. So they actually knew that Donald Trump was tweeting facts about the rigged election. 
50,000 ballots in what we are told was a swing state. That is the justification for Donald Trump suggesting that the election is rigged and they know he's right. But apparently he doesn't get credit for being right, even if it's only sometimes. During this time, executives were also clearly liaising with federal enforcement and intelligence agencies about moderation of election related content. While we're still at the start of reviewing the Twitter files, we're finding out more about these interactions every day. Policy director Nick Pickles is asked if they should say Twitter detects misinfo through machine learning, human review and partnerships with outside experts. The employee asks, I know that's been a slippery process. Not sure if you want our public explanation to hang on that. Pickles quickly asks if they could just say partnerships. After a pause, he says, e.g., not sure we'd describe the FBI slash DHS as experts. So they're not experts, they're partners. And they accept whatever they're being told by FBI and DHS as if they are an authoritative source and could not be doing anything else in the entire world. There's no motivation for what the FBI and the DHS are doing vis-a-vis Twitter censorship besides wanting to protect the American public. And how are they engaged in protecting the American public? Oh, by stomping all over their First Amendment rights. Totally makes sense. I can see how a bunch of millennial communists would immediately just eat whatever they're being spoon fed by the FBI and DHS. This post about the Hunter Biden laptop situation shows that Roth not only met weekly with the FBI and DHS, but with the office of the director of national intelligence. And it's important to remember that Ratcliffe, John Ratcliffe at the time, who was the director of national intelligence, made it very clear that the Hunter Biden laptop was not part of a Russian disinformation effort. Here's the post Taibbi attached. I believe this is from Yoel Roth. Here's what they said. What's new for you since our last check-in? Hacked materials exploded. We blocked the New York Post story. Then we unblocked it, but said the opposite. Then said we unblocked it. And now we're in a messy situation where our policy is in shambles. Comms is angry. Reporters think we're idiots. And we're refactoring an exceedingly complex policy 18 days out from the election. In short, FML, which means F my life. Weekly sync with FBI, DHS, DNI regarding election security. The meeting happened about 15 minutes after the aforementioned hacked materials implosion. The government declined to share anything useful when asked. Monthly meeting with FBI, FITF, briefed on several ongoing investigations. Roth's report to FBI, DHS, DNI is almost farcical in its self-flagellating tone. Some of Roth's later slacks indicate his weekly confabs with federal law enforcement involved separate meetings. Here, he ghosts the FBI and DHS, respectively, to go first to an Aspen Institute thing, then take a call with Apple. And Aspen Institute is as global communist as it comes. Here, the FBI sends reports about a pair of tweets, the second of which involves a former Tippecanoe County, Indiana counselor and Republican named John Basham, claiming between 2% and 25% of ballots by mail are being rejected for errors. The attached Slack message reads, 
We just got a report from the FBI concerning two tweets related to the shredding of mail-in ballots. This is proven to be false via this and a PolitiFact fact check is enclosed. Do we have a moment ready for this one? I believe it was deemed no vio on numerous occasions. So they said this wasn't a violation. And apparently the people at the federal agencies who Twitter trusts absolutely are relying on PolitiFact fact checks to inform them about what they need to request censorship for. The FBI's second report concerned this tweet by John Basham. The tweet reads, editorial, the Democrats are in complete panic as their massive push for vote by mail is backfiring on them. Two things are unfolding. An unexpected number of registered Republicans are returning ballots and between 2% and 25% of ballots by mail are being rejected for errors. The FBI flagged tweet then got circulated in the enforcement slack. Twitter cited PolitiFact to say that the story was proven to be false, then noted the second was already deemed no violation on numerous occasions. The group then decides to apply a learn how voting is safe and secure label because one commenter says it's totally normal to have a 2% error rate. Roth then gives the final go ahead to the process initiated by the FBI. Examining the entire election enforcement slack, we didn't see one reference to moderation requests from the Trump campaign, the Trump White House or Republicans. Generally, we looked, they may exist. We were told they do. However, they were absent here. Now, for whatever reason, there is a deleted tweet by Matt Taibbi and the Twitter thread jumps from 27 to 32. Perhaps I'm not looking at this correctly and someone can find those tweets. If you do, please send them my way. There is probably a full capture of this thread somewhere, and I'm not finding it now. If you have it, by all means, send it over. But for now, I'll continue on 32. This inspires a long slack that reads like a Tidiana McGrath parody. I agree it's a joke, concedes a Twitter employee, but he's also literally admitting in a tweet a crime. The group declares Hux an edge case, and though one notes we don't make exceptions for jokes or satire, they ultimately decide to leave him be because we've poked enough bears. Could still mislead people, could still mislead people, the humor-averse group declares before moving on from Huckabee. And I apologize for the lack of context here, but those tweets just are not there anymore. Roth responds to the claim that the post could still mislead people. And he writes, yeah, I could see us taking action under misleading claims that cause confusion about the established laws, regulations, procedures, and methods of a civic process. How convoluted already. This is ridiculous, but it's not one that we could really label in a useful way. So it's removal of a stupid and ill-advised joke or nothing. I may be inclined not to remove without a report from voting authorities, given it's been a while since he tweeted it, and virtually all of the replies I'm seeing are critical slash counter speech. And Roth asks for input from other Twitter employees. Roth suggests moderation, even in this absurd case, could depend on whether or not the joke results in confusion. This seemingly silly case actually foreshadows serious issues later on. In the docs, execs often expand criteria to subjective issues like intent. Yes, a video is authentic, but why was it shown? 
orientation? Was a banned tweet shown to condemn or support or reception? Did a joke cause confusion? This reflex will become key in January 6th. In another example, Twitter employees prepare to slap a mail-in voting is safe warning label on a Trump tweet about a postal screw up in Ohio before realizing the events took place, which meant the tweet was factually accurate. And the tweet in question is Donald Trump quote tweeting a tweet from ABC 13 News about the 50,000 voters in Ohio receiving the wrong ballots. In the quote tweet, he writes, no, a rigged election. Very well done on speed in quotes and capitalized. Trump was being visibility filtered as late as a week before the election. Here, senior execs didn't appear to have a particular violation, but still worked fast to make sure a fairly anodyne Trump tweet couldn't be replied to, shared or liked. The duly elected sitting president of the United States being cut off from the American people. He wrote big problems and discrepancies with mail-in ballots all over the USA must have final vote total on November 3rd. He is right about all of that. There were massive problems with mail-in voting and we didn't get a count on November 3rd. The election was a disaster but they didn't want anybody to see that in advance of the election. So they censored it after making the decision. Yoel Roth wrote in the Slack channel, let's inform stakeholders and move forward. Someone asked if he wants to still do a call. And he said, no, we can skip that. Eventually, one of the Twitter employees with a redacted name wrote very well done on speed, folks. What this is all designed for and a huge positive for the platform. A seemingly innocuous follow-up tweet involved a tweet from actor James Woods, whose ubiquitous presence in argued-over Twitter data sets is already a Twitter files in-joke. After Woods angrily quote-tweeted about Trump's warning label, Twitter staff, in a preview of what ended up happening after January 6th, despaired of a reason for action but resolved to, quote, hit him hard on a future violation. Here, a label is applied to Georgia Republican Congresswoman. It's actually a congressman, Jody Heiss, for saying, say no to big tech censorship and mailed ballots are more prone to fraud than in-person balloting. It's just common sense. It's also just true and true to the point where it was just common accepted knowledge. It was found in the Carter Baker Commission study on election fraud, mail-in balloting is the method of voting most vulnerable to fraud. Twitter teams went easy on Heiss, only applying quote-unquote soft intervention, with Roth worrying about a wah-wah censorship optics backlash. So Yoel Roth, who is the leader in making all of these decisions, is mocking the people who have a problem with censorship. This is how committed these people are. They just think it's automatically good for them to be able to control the public conversation and the flow of information about politics that leads to an informed populace, which is something that we're all supposed to want, I thought. Meanwhile, there are multiple instances of involving pro-Biden tweets warning Trump, quote, may try to steal the election, end quote, that got surfaced only to be approved by senior executives. 
This one, they decide just, quote, expresses concern that mailed ballots might not make it in time. The tweet in question is from a guy called Elijah Daniel. He writes, this is so disgusting and terrifying. They're going to try to steal the election. You have one week. If you haven't voted yet, don't mail. Drop it off or vote early. If you can't vote, make sure your family is, unless they're Trump supporters, just let them forget. Vote them out. So obviously a partisan Democrat and communist. And I think that tweet is stupid and malicious, but I would never encourage it to be censored. And here's the internal discussion. Hey, team, can I get your opinion on this tweet? This is an edge case with commentary encouraging voters not to vote by mail. I believe we should label it. The employee whose name is redacted gets a response back from Patrick Conlon. I think that I'd not bother with labeling this one. It's still encouraging people to vote, but expresses the concern that mailed ballots might not make it in time, which seems fair this close to the election date, still encouraging people to turn in their ballots in person or to vote in person. And the reply is, okay, thank you, Patrick. So that tweet is just fine. It's not misinformation about the election. It's good because it's encouraging people to vote, except, of course, Trump supporters. Even the hashtag steal our votes, referencing a theory that a combination of Amy Coney Barrett and Trump will steal the election, is approved by Twitter brass because it's understandable and a reference to a U.S. Supreme Court decision. And he attaches the exchange, but let's move on. In this exchange, again, unintentionally humorous, former Attorney General Eric Holder claimed the U.S. Postal Service was, quote, deliberately crippled, ostensibly by the Trump administration. He was initially hit with a generic warning label, but it was quickly taken off by Roth. Here's the tweet. It's too late to use the mails. Mails? Given Supreme Court rulings, I urge everyone to now vote in person, early vote or use drop boxes. Protect your health, but don't let the court and the deliberately crippled postal service deprive you of your most precious civil right. Plan your vote. And you might remember there was the debacle about how Trump was stealing the blue mailboxes. And it's interesting, isn't it, that they are telling the public what Eric Holder is communicating in that tweet. He's telling the public that the mail might not be the right way for you to deliver your ballot. So instead, use the drop boxes or drop it off in person. That way, mail-in ballots don't actually get tracked by the Postal Service. Instead, they're just dropped off and the chain of custody there is gone. It's not supposed to be gone. The regulations, the laws, the statutes around the mail-in voting in most states say that the chain of custody must be protected there too. We just know from experience that it's not. And you can imagine that someone in Eric Holder's position at that point would have known that it wouldn't be. Later in November 2020, Roth asked if staff had a debunk moment on the Seidel Smartmatic vote counting stories, which his DHS contacts told him were a combination of about 47 conspiracy theories. It's not real. It's so not real that it's a combination of 47 conspiracy theories, according to whoever he was talking to at the DHS. And so you don't need to actually research Seidel or Smartmatic and find the problems with vote counting in those systems. You just need to trust 
that that's too many conspiracy theories for the underlying fact to possibly be true. On December 10th, as Trump was in the middle of firing off 25 tweets saying things like, quote, a coup is taking place in front of our eyes. Twitter executives announced a new L3 deamplification tool. This step meant a warning label could now also come with deamplification. So that means that when the post is labeled, now it's also deboosted. The likelihood of anyone seeing it is decreased. Some executives wanted to use the new deamplification tool to silently limit Trump's reach more right away, beginning with the following tweet. And he posted a video from Newsmax featuring Jim Jordan discussing the fact that Trump had received 11 million more votes than his 2016 total, which is an astounding number. He increased his vote total by nearly 20%. However, in the end, the team had to use older, less aggressive labeling tools, at least for that day, until the L3 entities went live the following morning. The significance is that it shows that Twitter, in 2020 at least, was deploying a vast range of visible and invisible tools to rein in Trump's engagement long before J6. The ban will come after other avenues are exhausted. In Twitter docs, execs frequently refer to bots. For example, let's put a bot on that. A bot is just any automated heuristic moderation rule. It can be anything. Every time a person in Brazil uses green and blob in the same sentence, action might be taken. And that's pretty extreme. They wouldn't even need to look at the actual tweet at that point. They would just have the bot searching out those keywords and then taking action on whichever tweets contained those keywords. In this instance, it appears moderators added a bot for a Trump claim made on Breitbart. The bot ends up becoming an automated tool, invisibly watching both Trump and apparently Breitbart. We'll add media ID to bot was a message related to this tweet in the Slack channel. Trump by J6 was quickly covered in bots. There is no way to follow the frenzied exchanges among Twitter personnel from between January 6th and 8th without knowing the basics of the company's vast lexicon of acronyms and Orwellian unwords. To bounce an account is to put it in timeout, usually for a 12-hour review or cool-off. Interstitial, one of the many nouns used as a verb in Twitter speak, deny list is another one, means placing a physical label atop a tweet so it can't be seen. PII has multiple meanings, one being public interest interstitial, a covering label applied for public interest reasons. The post below also references proactive V, which means proactive visibility filtering. This is all necessary background to J6. Before the riots, the company was engaged in an inherently insane slash impossible project, trying to create an ever-expanding, ostensibly rational set of rules to regulate every conceivable speech situation that might arise between humans. This project was preposterous, yet its leaders were unable to see this, having become infected with groupthink, coming to believe sincerely that it was Twitter's responsibility to control as much as possible what people could talk about, how often, and with whom. The firm's executives on day one of the January 6th crisis at least tried to pay lip service to its dizzying array of rules. By day two, they began wavering. By day three, a million rules were reduced to one. What we say goes. 
And let's just jump back one tweet for a second. So they believed sincerely that it was Twitter's responsibility to control as much as possible what people could talk about, how often, and with whom. Now think about where that is going and what this ability might allow. They're talking about apps that combine your medical history, your vaccination status with your central bank digital currency. You'll also have your social credit score on there and your environmental score. And that social credit score will be compiled as a result of all these things you think and tweet and say. All it takes is these sorts of people to be running those sorts of systems and you can see immediately what sort of society they intend to build. So let's move to part four, and I may not have time for part five today. If I don't, we'll do it tomorrow. Twitter files part four, the removal of Donald Trump, January 7th. As the pressure builds, Twitter executives build the case for a permanent ban. This is Michael Schellenberger doing the reporting. On January 7th, senior Twitter execs create justifications to ban Trump, seek a change of policy for Trump alone, distinct from other political leaders express no concern for the free speech or democracy implications of a ban. For those just catching up, please see part one, where Matt Taibbi documents how senior Twitter executives violated their own policies to prevent the spread of accurate information about Hunter Biden's laptop. Part two, where Barry Weiss shows how senior Twitter execs created secret blacklists to de-amplify disfavored Twitter users, not just specific tweets. And part three, where Matt Taibbi documents how senior Twitter execs censored tweets by Trump in the run up to the November 2020 election while regularly engaging with representatives of U.S. government law enforcement agencies. For years, Twitter had resisted calls to ban Trump. Blocking a world leader from Twitter, it wrote in 2018, would hide important info and hamper necessary discussion around their words and actions. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that they use that justification to explain why they kept the Ayatollah on the platform. But after the events of January 6th, the internal and external pressure on Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey grows. Former First Lady Michelle Obama, tech journalist Kara Swisher, the ADL, high tech venture capitalist Chris Saka, and many others publicly call on Twitter to permanently ban Trump. And they did that on Twitter, of course. Dorsey was on vacation in French Polynesia the week of January 4th through 8th, 2021. He phoned into meetings, but also delegated much of the handling of the situation to senior execs, Yoel Roth, Twitter's head of trust and safety, and Vijaya Gotti, head of legal policy and trust. As context, it's important to understand that Twitter's staff and senior execs were overwhelmingly progressive. In 2018, 2020, and 2022, 96%, 98%, and 99% of Twitter's staff's political donations went to Democrats. In 2017, Roth tweeted that there were, quote, actual Nazis in the White House, end quote. In April 2022, Roth told a colleague that his goal is, quote, to drive change in the world, which is why he decided not to become an academic. Oh, his activist academic friends must be very insulted by that. On January 7th, Jack emails employees stating Twitter needs to remain consistent in its policies, including the rights of users to return to Twitter after a temporary suspension. 
Well, that's cool. I had already been suspended for almost three months at that point. After Roth reassures an employee that, quote, people who care about this aren't happy with where we are. Around 11.30 a.m. Pacific time, Roth DMs his colleagues with news that he is excited to share. Guess what? He writes, Jack just approved repeat offender for civic integrity. The new approach would create a system where five violations strikes would result in permanent suspension. And apparently they don't like baseball very much because you can't use strikes if it ain't three progress exclaims a member of Roth's trust and safety team. The exchange between Roth and his colleagues makes clear that they had been pushing Jack for greater restrictions on the speech Twitter allows around elections. The colleague wants to know if the decision means Trump can finally be banned. The person asks, does the incitement to violence aspect change that calculus? Roth says it doesn't. Trump continues to have just his one strike remaining. Roth's colleagues query about incitement to violence heavily foreshadows what will happen the following day. On January 8th, Twitter announces a permanent ban on Trump due to, quote, the risk of further incitement of violence. On January 8th, Twitter says its ban is based on, quote, specifically how Trump's tweets are being received and interpreted. But in 2019, Twitter said it did, quote, not attempt to determine all potential interpretations of the content or its intent. So that rule is gone. Now they are able to judge whether or not something should be censored based on how they perceive that the tweet might be interpreted by other people. And once you have gotten deep into the hate movement, these people are a part of, once you realize that they are more than happy to stomp all over the rights of American citizens in order to keep their regime in power and to control the public conversation, then they're free to imagine that the worst people in the world will see these tweets and interpret them in the worst way possible, which means violence. So now the possibility that people are as bad as they imagine people to be, or even worse, allows them the leeway to interpret everything in the worst possible way, cast every statement in the worst possible light, and then assume that that is the likely outcome and that they must protect everybody from that outcome. The only serious concern we found expressed within Twitter over the implications for free speech and democracy of banning Trump came from a junior person in the organization. It was tucked away in a lower level Slack channel known as Site Integrity Auto. And Schellenberger attaches the message. Here it is. This might be an unpopular opinion, but one off ad hoc decisions like this that don't appear rooted in a policy are, in my humble opinion, a slippery slope and reflect an alternatively equally dictatorial problem. This now appears to be a fiat by an online platform CEO with a global presence that can gatekeep speech for the entire world, which seems unsustainable. And that is actually surprisingly insightful, but apparently it went ignored. Twitter employees use the term one off frequently in their Slack discussions. Its frequent use reveals significant employee discretion over when and whether to apply warning labels on tweets and strikes on users. Again, it's clear that they give themselves 
the ability to censor whatever they want for whatever justification they come up with. Recall from Twitter files too by Barry Weiss that according to Twitter staff, we control visibility quite a bit and we control the amplification of your content quite a bit and normal people do not know how much we do. Twitter employees recognize the difference between their own politics and Twitter's terms of service, but they also engage in complex interpretations of content in order to stamp out prohibited tweets as a series of exchanges over the stop the steal hashtag reveal. Roth immediately DMs a colleague to ask if they add stop the steal and QAnon conspiracy term Kraken to a blacklist of terms to be deamplified. So Kraken is apparently a QAnon conspiracy term. Roth's colleague objects that blacklisting Stop the Steal risks deamplifying counter speech that validates the election. So they're making the calculation that leaving that up is going to generate enough blowback to that hashtag that the narrative that the election was the most safe and secure in history will actually be pushed up itself through the interactions with the stop the steal hashtag. And so what you can tell from that is that they are focused on the outcome. Leaving those tweets up is worth it because they believe that the community is going to do their work in enforcing the central narrative. Indeed, notes Roth's colleague, a quick search of top stop the steal tweets and their counter speech. But they quickly come up with a solution. Deamplify accounts with Stop the Steal in the name or profile since those are not affiliated with counter speech. So if you put Stop the Steal in your profile, then your profile is deboosted. It is visibility filtered. And they're doing it in this instance because there's no one who's going to go find these profiles and then somehow respond. They're not going to get the effect that they actually want. So they're just going to simply deboost these instances. But it turns out that even blacklisting Kraken is less straightforward than they thought. That's because Kraken, in addition to being a QAnon conspiracy theory based on the mythical Norwegian sea monster, is also the name of a cryptocurrency exchange and was thus allow listed. Now, for the record, Kraken is not in the Q lexicon. The word literally does not appear in any of the Q posts. So we have Michael Schellenberger, the objective journalist chosen to report the Twitter files, just inventing what Kraken is. Kraken's most relevant meaning in this context comes from the fact that Sidney Powell mentioned it in a context that included the voting machine systems and whether or not those may have been monitored. At least that's what I recall from the time. And while there may be crossover there between people who follow Q and people who were paying attention to Sidney Powell, that doesn't somehow make Kraken a QAnon conspiracy theory based on a mythical Norwegian sea monster. But what can you expect from mainstream leftist journalists? Employees struggle with whether to punish users who share screenshots of Trump's deleted J6 tweets. We should bounce those accounts with a strike given the screenshot violates the policy. And another response was, they are criticizing Trump, so I'm a bit hesitant with applying strike to this user. 
Again, all of it is subjective. The rules are not applied evenly. They just make up rules to censor what they think needs to be censored because their priority is pushing that agenda forward and maintaining belief in the central narrative. What if a user dislikes Trump and objects to Twitter censorship? The tweet still gets deleted. But since the intention is not to deny the election result, no punishing strike is applied. If there are instances where the intent is unclear, please feel free to raise. And they attach a post that the account is literally just some guy. That's his screen name. He writes, I don't even like the man, but I'm not going to put up with Twitter deleting opinions they don't like. And the Twitter team has a serious discussion about what to do in this sort of instance. So you're apparently not allowed to criticize Twitter's censorship that we now know they were doing in partnership with elements of the deep state. If you criticize Twitter doing that, even if you don't like Donald Trump, you're still in trouble. Around noon, a confused senior executive in advertising sales sends a DM to Roth, sales exec. Jack says, we will permanently suspend Trump if our policies are violated after a 12-hour account lock. What policies is Jack talking about? Roth says, any policy violation. What happens next is essential to understanding how Twitter justified banning Trump. A sales exec wrote, are we dropping the public interest policy now? Roth, six hours later, replied, in this specific case, we're changing our public interest approach for his account. The ad exec is referring to Twitter's policy of public interest exceptions, which allows the content of elected officials, even if it violates Twitter rules, if it directly contributes to understanding or discussion of a matter of public concern. Roth pushes for a permanent suspension of Representative Matt Gates even though it, quote, doesn't quite fit anywhere. Duh. It's kind of a test case for the rationale for banning Trump. He writes, I'm trying to talk Twitter's safety team into removal as a conspiracy that incites violence. They're just making it up as they go along. Around 2.30, comms execs DM Roth to say they don't want to make a big deal of the QAnon ban to the media because they fear, quote, if we push this, it looks like we're trying to offer up something in place of the thing everyone wants, meaning a Trump ban. So now they're feeling pressure that they must ban Trump because they've gotten all these big accounts like Michelle Obama telling them that they have to. And of course, all of them want to, everyone they associate with wants to, probably every account they follow on Twitter, all those people want to too. And so now they have taken on the position of imagining that they represent the will of the American people. What they're doing, they believe, is democratic. And they believe this because they don't associate with anyone who doesn't agree with them about the whole thing. And they're not even exposed to the authentic disagreements with their policies because all those people are censored. That evening, a Twitter engineer DMs Roth to say, I feel a lot of debates around exceptions stem from the fact that Trump's account is not technically different from anybody else and yet treated differently due to his personal status, 
without corresponding Twitter rules. And that's a sort of conceptual framework we see all the time. We're seeing it right now in articles that are coming out from deranged communists about how Trump must be indicted. They always say, if Trump was a normal person, he would be in jail right now. Well, maybe if the underlying claim that you're making about why he should be in jail was actually true, but it's not true. And that's why he's not in jail. It's not because he's the former president. It's because he didn't do anything wrong. But of course, these people aren't very good thinkers, and they think that that argument is very powerful. If this was just a normal person, oh, everything would be different. Well, it's not a normal person. It's the duly elected sitting president of the United States elected by the people. So if it seems like there's a double standard there, it's because you're talking about two entirely different things. Roth's response hints at how Twitter would justify deviating from its longstanding policy. To put a different spin on it, policy is one part of the system of how Twitter works. We ran into the world changing faster than we were able to either adapt the product or the policy. So they can't keep up with the changing landscape. Their policy isn't enabling them to do the things they are certain that they need to do to protect everybody, to protect our democracy. So instead, they just make up the rules. The evening of January 7th, the same junior employee who expressed an unpopular opinion about ad hoc decisions that don't appear rooted in policy speaks up one last time before the end of the day. Earlier that day, the employee wrote, my concern is specifically surrounding the unarticulated logic of the decision by Facebook. That space fills with the idea, conspiracy theory, that all internet moguls sit around like kings, casually deciding what people can and cannot see. This employee actually seems to have his head properly screwed on. The employee notes later in the day, and Will Oramus, I don't know who that is, noticed the inconsistency too, linking to an article for one zero at Medium called Facebook chucked its own rule book to ban Trump. The underlying problem, writes Will Oramus, is that the dominant platforms have always been loath to own up to their subjectivity because it highlights the extraordinary unfettered power they wield over the global public square and places the responsibility for that power on their own shoulders. So they hide behind an ever-changing rule book alternately pointing to it when it's convenient and shoving it under the nearest rug when it isn't. Facebook's suspension of Trump now puts Twitter in an awkward position. If Trump does indeed return to Twitter, the pressure on Twitter will ramp up to find a pretext on which to ban him as well. Indeed. And as Barry Weiss will show, that's exactly what happened. And so Barry Weiss dropped the fifth installment of the Twitter files in the afternoon yesterday. I went through some of that on the Badlands channel with Patrick Gunnels. We jumped on and discussed it, but I didn't join him until about halfway through. So we'll go through the whole thing tomorrow. Maybe there'll be another one today to discuss. Anthony Fauci seems to be next in the spotlight, and that will be glorious. Elon Musk, as most of you know by now, said on Sunday that his pronouns are prosecute and Fauci. And that's brilliant because that idea is now unavoidable in the public discussion. Elon also mentioned today that he had experienced some vaccine injury 
from his second shot. Now, I'll just take Elon's word for it that he did get vaccinated. I think that's pretty dumb. But either way, it's a great thing that that is now an okay subject to talk about. Elon Musk is bringing up all of these subjects that immediately become okay to discuss because he has put them forward on Twitter as a subject for discussion. He has that same kind of power that Donald Trump used to have on Twitter. He could change the public discussion on just about any subject simply by putting his voice into the conversation. And it is interesting timing on the potential Fauci releases because Ron DeSantis down in Florida has now called for the impaneling of a grand jury to investigate what exactly happened with the vaccines in Florida and where things may have gone wrong, where that corruption might have been. So good on Ron DeSantis, and I look forward to seeing and hearing more about that. But otherwise, I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. Don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!